The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, offering support for your spiritual growth and addiction recovery. Here's Rev. Lonnie Vanderslice and Rev. Dan Beckett. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery on Unity Online Radio. We're glad you're with us today. I'm Rev. Lonnie Vanderslice. And I'm Rev. Dan Beckett. And together, we discuss ways that spirituality and recovery intertwine and work together to support your spiritual growth in your recovery journey. So today's show is meant to be an interactive discussion. So if you're listening live, you have the opportunity to call in with your comments and questions. The number is 816-251-3555. Again, the number is 816-251-3555. Facebook users, you can also connect with us on our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery, to share your thoughts and comments. And so today's show is all about moving ahead in new ways to balance our lives. Just as each one of us needs to learn balance, you know, we, we gain our balance as we learn this new way of being, we have to learn uh, in our recovery groups how to find balance as well. So individually, We exercise newfound freedoms and autonomy, but that has to be balanced with the needs of the various communities that we're a part of. Yes, and so we'll begin by talking about self-centeredness and being out of balance in that way, and then move into the solution of learning to be in community. Then after the break, we'll share exactly how being in community helped us to come into balance with self and others, with the individual and the group, with the me and the we. So I can remember the first time that my um, um, sponsor said, you know, you need to learn to live in the middle and, you know, in moderation. And I said, what's that? And she said, that's that point between extremes that you pass through on your way from one end to the other. (laughs) And that was for the longest time how I felt about that. You know, when we talk about balance, balance. and and self-centeredness and, you know, uh, the greater good and all of those things. I had none of this balance. I was off into perfectionism. I didn't know how to do anything that wasn't, by my definition, less than perfect. You know, I was very rigid about that. Um, I was off into the uh, competitiveness, which is I have to be better than you, you know, and so I'm going to go overboard to do that. Um, I had no emotional capacity because I'd shut everything down. So I really had no way to to have some emotions. It was all, it was either I was enraged or it was nothing, flat, you know. And and I also had this belief system that I had to be self-sufficient. 
And so, you know, those attitudes put me in this place of being out of balance with the world. And when I got clean, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, how, those were ways of being for me. So how does this change? How do I modify that? This is another area where I really look back and realize how unaware I was of what was going on. I mean, I can see now uh, that I was out of balance uh, significantly uh, in my, um, you know, concern with what's going on with me versus with what's going on with others. But at the time, I had no idea. I didn't see it at all. Um, looking back on it, I I did and and do somewhat, not so much anymore. Have kind of an all or nothing um, perspective on things. Uh, I think that's faded a lot, and I'm grateful for that. But uh, as I was remembering a little earlier today, for whatever reason, I still can't eat two cookies. I don't know if I've ever had two cookies. I'll eat no cookies, or I'll eat a bag of cookies. Right now, I said no cookies. Uh, and I'm going to leave it that way. But that um, being out of balance, that sense of um, being hyper-concerned with, you know, and it is driven by fear, as we hear in recovery literature, that sense of being concerned about, am I going to be okay? What do I need in order for me to be okay? That was a, a primary mode of thinking way before uh, I knew that there was a uh, healthier, let's say, way to be in balance. And, you know, I can recall being told I was selfish, you know, as a youngster, um, certainly after I got in the program. And I I had this, um, I'll describe it as an allergy to the word, because it, it was always used in my youth as a manipulation tool. You know, when I wasn't doing what you wanted me to do, you would call me selfish, make me feel bad, and then I would be forced to do something I didn't want to do. That's really the way that I interpreted that word. And so by the time I got into the program, I didn't really understand what selfish looked like. What is selfish and self-centered? You know, and it's, it's uh, that all-consuming, pervasive thought about what about me? that you just described a minute earlier that, um, you know, it, it had evolved as a uh, survival technique. You know, am I going to be okay? Just like you said, what about me? And then moved into being just a way that I operated in the world. Yeah, it was, um, you know, looking back on it, I did not grow up in any kind of dire circumstances. You know, I didn't grow up in a, a war zone or even in a, um, an alcoholic home or anything like that. Uh, mine, I think, was more of a, you know, a, a psychic boundaries, you know, concern or, or for whatever reason, uh, I did not learn uh, good or healthy internal supports for what it means to be with others, to be able to uh, maintain one sense of self uh, in the face of uh, personalities of, of others around. I know that I didn't, I didn't even like, uh, and this has gotten much, much better, I did not like asking other people for help for anything at all. I was so oriented toward uh, doing everything that I possibly could to take care of or to do uh, whatever it was uh, on my own without having to enlist the help of others. I think because it was just simply easier for me, uh, meaning, you know, less, less painful than to uh, have someone else involved and uh, all of the 
variables that that go along with that i would just felt a lot safer i think is the right word i felt a lot safer if i could just take care of it myself and i did that for a long time now of course there's there's always an upside even when we're out of balance there's an upside to the skills we develop and the upside there was that i'm very good at uh, taking care of things that need to be taken care of but fortunately i no longer feel like that's the only tool that I have. But I distinctly remember when we talk about being self-centered and out of balance, that's one way that I was is sort of uh, unwilling, maybe even unable to engage others in things. And so it was all about me. Part of what drove my self-centeredness was fear. And we've talked about this at great length on other shows, but fear drove me to operate at the extremes. There was no no middle ground for me. It was um, all or none. It was um, I run or freeze. You know, uh, there was there was no um, there was no in between. You know that middle ground that I was talking about earlier, and that presented a lot of problems for me. I I remember being very manipulative in trying to figure out well what are they going to do next because then I could I could figure out what my next move might be and I could think I like to play chess see so I would try to figure out what the next three moves were so that I could anticipate and your word safety brought that to mind for me so that I could stay safe so that I could stay in my comfort zone so that I could be uh, comfortable about whatever was going on in the world. But fear drove me, you know, fear of ridicule, fear of failure, fear of uh, not being enough, all those things that we hear people talk about. And so for that reason, I was defined or defined myself by what I thought you thought of me. In other words, my codependency defined me. You know, I wanted to be whoever you wanted me to be so that I could be okay. I think there's a lot to that idea of of safety, um, and I see it also in how uh, I didn't, I really did not like uh, telling other people what was going on with me. You know, even if I w- was having some ache or pain, um, and certainly uh, some, you know, emotional reaction to something, it, I learned for whatever reason to uh, do the best I could to keep that. To myself, and that is a you know uh, driven by a fear of not being safe, and again, that kind of safety that we're talking about, or th- that I'm talking about, when I think back about my life, it, it w- would not, I don't think, would be evident from the outside. Uh, it's very much an internal thing. Certainly, some of it's uh, to do with circumstances, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if I'm not somehow wired for it. Uh, in addition to that, I, I, I usually find there's more than one factor going on that drives me one way or another. But I definitely did not want you to know what was going on with me. Because if you if I was having a problem and you knew about it, then you were going to get all in my business. And then I would lose my sense of self. And that was not a safe place to be. So I didn't want to tell you anything about what was going on with me. That's a really good point about our self-perceptions. You know, I had occasion not long ago to look back at my high school yearbook, you know, from XXX years ago. (laughs) And I, uh, because what I realized is that the way, well, there's a line in the recovery literature that says we cannot tell the truth from the false. And if you look at the pictures and you look at the quotes and you look at the statements that are made in my yearbook versus the way I remember feeling at that point in my life, there is a big mismatch. 
and and you're talking about uh, you know there was, maybe there was no outward evidence of this that you just spoke about. There seems to not be any outward evidence of this that I'm talking about, but yet on the inside, my self perception was not what I saw in that yearbook. You know, I was I was fear driven. I was uncertain of myself. I had no confidence. I, um, you know, I, I had to be perfectionistic because I wanted to be good enough. All those things that I already mentioned, and you know, I have struggled since that point to bring those two in alignment. And as we talk about in a recovery program, we judge our insides by other people's outsides, and we say we're not good enough. And I've been guilty of doing that. It can still creep in. It's a very easy trap to fall into, I think, and it's very um, wily, you know, and almost insidious because we are, when I do that, I am just comparing one perception with another, not necessarily realizing, and again, better about this now, but uh, when I'm comparing one perception with another, my perception of myself is an inside view. I, I see all the the stuff going on within me. I don't see that in other people. And so it's inherently, it's an apples and oranges thing. I think that was one reason that I was very quiet um, as a kid and tended to be much more comfortable either alone or in small groups of people than in large groups of people. Um, I think that's uh, part of all of this that we're talking about, this, uh, you know, driven by fear, concern for self, which, you know, shows up as self-centeredness, but on the inside, it doesn't feel like that. It just feels like self-preservation mm -hmm. is what it feels like. And that's, that's what, that was my experience and why I tended to uh, shy away from others or I could handle being with a small number of people because I could find a way to feel safe, but I could not uh, do so in a large group. So I tended to avoid large groups. And so that type of thing left me feeling with the challenge of not really knowing who I am, driven by fear, driven by these, these self, uh, mistaken self-perceptions. You know, it, it left me in this place of not knowing. So this is a challenge, this being out of balance with self-centeredness. And what is the solution? Well, in unity, we recognize that all of humanity is in community with one another and with God, and that we are all one. And this oneness was a central concept for Unity co-founders Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, and it's a core Unity teaching today as well. So this oneness shows up on our recovery journey as we learn to be in community with others, first in our recovery groups, then in our families and at work, and hopefully eventually in the world in general as our sense of connection grows wider and wider. And that sense of community is what we want to focus on today. So what do we mean when we talk about being in community? And what does that look like? And how do we go about finding community if it's absent in our life? When I think about what community looks like to me now, I, I find myself um, thinking about the various communities that I'm a part of at this point. And so um, certainly for those of us on a recovery journey, our recovery community is one of the uh, first changes, at least for me it was, uh, the first big shifts in my life. Because, of course, prior to recovery, I was not hanging around in a recovery group. But uh, post-recovery, I was hanging around in a recovery group. And so the first one that I think of, and the, and the one that kind of models for me uh, what it means to be in community, is a 12-step recovery group. I remember... Um, 
feeling a lot of different things early on. Uh, certainly had uh, good experiences with my first home group. Um, but also, you know, anytime we're in a group like that, we're going to find people that are challenging. And so learning uh, how to uh, respond or react or noticing what my reactions were uh, to people in the group that were challenging uh, was part of it, was part of being in community. So that's what comes to mind first, is what does community look like? Well, it looks like uh, a recovery group. So for me in this recovery group is where I learned about what does selfishness look like and self-centeredness look like and what does um, non-community look like. I can remember being being there and making comments about how I don't feel a part of and I don't feel included and I don't feel like I belong. And I was told that I will belong when I'm told that I, be I belong. But some of the stuff that I learned included that this self-centeredness is part of this, what they call spiritual disease of addiction, and that it is this survival instinct that is driven by fear, as we've talked about previously, but that the antidote to that is autonomy. Well, I thought autonomy meant I get to do whatever I want whenever I want, for as long as I want, however, you know, and that was not the case. And so it wasn't until I was in there for a while that I learned that it was basically um, self-governance within uh, a certain set of boundaries, that I had to learn how to figure out when am I out of bounds? When is my self-centeredness way off to one side or the other? And and then how do I have to bring it into back it bring it bring it back into balance in order to be in community with this group of people that all have the same purpose? Yeah, and I, I found that the best way to learn that is to be in community. And part of what being in community means for me is uh, learning and practicing, you know, when is it my turn to talk and when is it not my turn to talk? When is it my turn to help out by sweeping the room or buying the paper towels or making sure we have enough books or what have you? Uh, and when is it someone else's turn to do that? Um, you know, when is it my turn to chair a meeting? And when I'm chairing a meeting, you know, when is it my turn to talk? Uh, chairing a meeting, I learned, doesn't mean it's the it's the Dan show, right? It's not become all about me. It means I get to serve in that way and facilitate a discussion. So being in community to me means uh, having those opportunities to see um, balance as it works out and, you know, as I make mistakes and then try again and uh, balance my uh, my sharing time with my listening time, et cetera. So I was reminded by that that one of the mentors I had early in the program would say, remember this, first thought, wrong. And, you know, I, for a long time I didn't get that. I didn't understand what he was talking about. And he was talking about that my first inclination is to sit back. It's not to participate. It's to wait until somebody else raises their hand. When somebody else, and they say at the beginning, who wants to start? You know, my hand is never the first one up. And so, you know, my first thought, whatever it is, oh, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to participate. Oh, that's too much work. Um, you know, I don't know how. Whatever the excuses that comes to my mind, that is exactly what I need to do. I need to, I need to ignore that first thought and I need to jump in and participate. So for me, an awful lot of learning to be in community was to do the opposite of what I was normally doing, what, I, what, was, what would normally keep me in my own comfort zone. Yeah, that, that's, 
that's tricky. I've heard that before too. And I, and I always sort of struggled with, well, as I learn from that principle, and then maybe I start raising my hand instead of being the one that never does. So when that becomes my first thought, when do I get to stop saying first thought wrong? You yeah. know, it's, it's, I think it's inherently a little tricky. Uh, another community, when I think about what does community look like, uh, another community for me is church community. Um, and at our church, uh, at the end of the service, like in many unity churches, we will all, uh, we all stand and we recite together the prayer for protection, which I love. And for whatever reason, when I first started um, uh, as the minister there, I uh, just, my eyes are closed at that point and I don't start the prayer. I don't lead the prayer. I just, I remember the first time I thought, I'm going to see what happens. And I said nothing at all. And there's a certain amount of silence and then somebody, then the whole group starts. You know, it just, it starts. And we've done that ever since. And I found that uh, sometimes there's a particular person that starts at each time. And I've, and I've said, uh, have you, do you wonder what would happen if you didn't start it? Because I know we can get to feeling like, well, if I don't do it, you know, I have to do it. No one else. Can. Well, actually, just wait and see what happens. It's going to start one way or the other. Uh, I love that example of uh, being in community means that, you know, when it's time for something to do, someone will step up and do it because it's clear that it needs to be done. I love that about healthy community in that way. It's just like, um, again, in the, I mean, I talk a lot about the recovery community. You know, if I get there and uh, the coffee's not on, then I think, well, either nobody signed up or maybe someone uh, forgot or for whatever reason, uh, there's supposed to be coffee and there's not. What do I do? I just make the coffee. It's really, it's really that simple. That's, that's a big part of being in community for me is, is being willing to be the one who does it and knowing that it doesn't always have to be me to be the one who does it. Yeah, that brings up the principle of the next right thing. You know, when we, uh, at least when I joined in the communities, I, I learned that certain things happen in a certain order and there are approximate time when this could happen. And in my, um, my desire for order and sometimes for control, I would be irritated when things didn't happen when they were supposed to happen. And, you know, I was uh, reined in with the, with the thought of what is the next right thing? It's not my job to run the place. It's not my job to say, hey, you're next start talking. You know, it's not my job to say, you know, there's some spots on the board. Nobody signed up for a meeting yet. Why don't you do that? That's not my job. And for me, what is the next right thing that I need to do? You know, and so it called me into service, you know, which you mentioned earlier, part of being in community is seeking to serve. You know, where can I be of assistance? How can I be of help? And I found that doing that um, calmed many of the fears that I had because when I started helping, when I started supporting, when I started serving, I became a part of instead of an outsider. Yeah, what you're uh, sharing is bringing to mind um, experiences that I had early in recovery. There was a group that met, and, and it was a pretty crowded room. It wasn't a big room, but we get about 50 people in there. And there was a, kind of a, a U-shaped a row of chairs around three sides of the room. And then there were some chairs in the middle that made rows. And I remember um, it, it was very challenging for me at the end when the basket got passed 
that it just got passed willy-nilly here. And I, I could tell you exactly what the optimal path to pass the dang basket was. Um, but I just had to sit there. And that was one of my early experiences realizing, you know, it's okay just to let the group do, do what the group's going to do. Um, it doesn't need to be how I'm sitting here thinking of it. In fact, why am I thinking about that and not listening to the person who's speaking? Um, it took a while for that. Uh, group member, uh, some time later, uh, I'll always remember uh, Debbie M. shared in a similar circumstance this question that I can ask myself. Who made me the teacher? Why all of a sudden is it my responsibility to inform the group what the very best way to pass the basket is? Well, it's not. I'm not the teacher. There may be circumstances where I am. Uh, I may have someone that asks me for a suggestion, for example, but I don't offer suggestions if I'm not asked or I try not to. And so um, learning about being irritated at the path of the basket and then learning from Debbie M., who made me the teacher that has served me really well. And it just, and it's all because of community. So learning to trust is a big, big thing for me. You know, how can I trust this group of drunks, this group of addicts, this, this ragtag bunch, which they call a benign anarchy in the literature that um, seem to be able to get along fine before I got there. And yet at the same time, doesn't seem to have any organization about them. How can I, how can I trust this? And when I learned about the group conscience that, that, you know, is, the consciousness of the people in the room that are all trying to do the next right thing, that there is some kind of guidance that, that participates, that, that comes into that, that sees that everything gets done and somebody steps up. And I won't say that somebody's moved to step up, but you know what I'm, what I'm saying is that, that um, things seem to happen just the way they need to. And so for, for a long time, I had to sit on my hands instead of jumping up to volunteer to do everything, because that was one of my coping skills, was if I got busy doing things, I didn't have the anxiety, then I would just sit on my hands and wait and see, okay, God, what's going to happen next? <laughs> you know, who's going who's gonna to step up? Who's going to take care of this? And after a while, I began to trust that it would all happen the way that it needed to. I love how uh, recovery communities are bottom-up organizations and how everything happens uh, that needs to happen, even if it seems like it's not going to. You know, we don't have uh, bosses telling us what to do. And in a way, it's very much like life. I mean, yeah, okay, so I might have a job and I do have a boss, but there's no boss of my life. Um, and so much like in, in a recovery community, uh, someone will know what to do, will do uh, the next right thing, and uh, somehow or other things get done. Now, we do have guidelines, you know, we have steps and we have the traditions that talk about how to go about doing things. So hold that thought, Dan, because it's time for a short break. And when we come back, we'd love to hear from others as, you, as we continue our conversation. Phone number is 816-251-3555. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. 
If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, we hope you will give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the support of listeners like you to continue operating and expand its outreach. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Catherine Ponder, taken from a classic talk called The Prosperous Truth, recorded at Unity of Austin in 1991. God is extravagant supply. Get that, extravagant. God is extravagant supply. He brings forth the best robe. He spreads a banquet table, as we saw last night, with good things on which we may feast. He overflows our cup. He opens the windows of heaven and pours out a blessing. And then this is what the Unity Correspondence Course said. Why are you satisfied with such meager living when you may have so much? To find out more about Unity teachings, visit unity.org. For over 23 years, Liz Dunn and the team at Celebrate Your Life have been presenting life-changing events with some of the world's leading spiritual teachers. Experience a Celebrate Your Life event for yourself in 2019. Tickets are available now for the International Women's Summit, March 7th to 10th in Phoenix, Arizona, featuring some of the most inspirational speakers in the realm of mind, body, and spirit. Do something for yourself this year. Go to CelebrateYourLife.com and reserve your space today. Now's the time to register for this year's Heart of Healing Retreat, hosted by the leaders of the Silent Unity Prayer Ministry. Imagine coming to the beautiful campus of Unity Village with its fountains and rose garden to rest and renew your spirit as you explore the spiritual principles of healing. You'll spend time in silence as well as celebration. The retreat is April 25th to 28th with an early bird discount before March 1st. Visit unity.org slash silentunityretreat. Take a trip with Rev. Paul John Roach every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Central and tune in to World Spirituality. A lifelong student and practitioner of many world spiritual teachings, Paul guides you to the unity and common values shared by all world religions. We really are all connected. Take a journey with Paul and explore our planet's spiritual landscape with insight, humor, and practical advice for all. Join the show with your question or comment right here on Unity Online Radio. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery with Rev. Lonnie Vanderslice and Rev. Dan Beckett. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're glad you're with us today. And if you're just joining us, my name is Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice, and I'm here with Reverend Dan Beckett. We'll resume our discussion in just a moment, but first we want to let you know that the phone lines are open. So if you have a question or a comment to share, please give us a call at 816-251-3555. Again, the number is 816-251-3555. And prior to the break, we were discussing the challenge of being out of balance in 
in self-centeredness. And then also about the solution being in community somehow. What is that like? Uh, what does it mean to be in community? What does that look like? So Lonnie, now that we know about the challenge of being out of balance with self-centeredness and the solution has to do with community, how exactly does being in community bring us into balance and in right relation with others? Well, as we've talked about before, slowly, <laughs> that's how for me. Yes. Uh, you know, it. I learn from the community. First, you know, they're willing to to allow me to participate, to be there. I have the right to be there. And then I can start listening and learning. And one of the things that I learned is I can't just stop doing something. Stop being self-centered. Okay, how do I do that? You know, the obsessive mind still needs something else to focus on. And one of the things that I learned was from a... a um, a story in the back of the book, the name of the story was Freedom from Bondage, and it stated something that rang true for me. And it said, the only problems I have now are those I create when I break out in a rash of self-will. So that took me on this path of trying to find out what does self-will look like? When, it, when am I being self-directed? When am I being self-determined? When am I doing what I want to do as opposed to something that is... Um, you know, for the greater good, that kind of thing. And I had to have help with that. I couldn't, I couldn't see that by myself. It was a way of being that I was used to, to living in. And I needed mentors and I needed people that would tell me the truth when I walked into a room that I would know that I would get the unvarnished opinion about my behavior. And so that's where it started for me. Yes, and, and I concur with the slowly that's the best answer for any of this. How did I uh, move from self-centeredness to right relationship with community? Slowly, that's how I did it. But what comes to mind is, and I know I talk about uh, this a lot because it's been so important to me, is uh, I learned how to make that shift in the community, um, just like we're talking about. Um, by by showing up each day, by participating, by you know learning w w when is it my time to do something and and when is it not my time to do something, uh, you know how can I be helpful? How does all this even work? You know, beginning to see uh, who the group officers were and what they were doing and what was the chairperson doing and just being around uh, a group that was functioning very well as a balanced and, and kind of egalitarian community, just being in that community um, is, the for me, the very first uh, stages of learning to kind of get out of my own self and to learn how to balance and be in right relation with others um, simply by being immersed in seeing it done. And so... For me, another piece was distinguishing my wants from my needs because in my mind, I needed everything, you know, and and it was uh, not until I was in community that I saw many people that had less than I had, whether it was, um, you know, in terms of what they had lost in their life or that kind of thing. And then I was given a gratitude practice and, and that came about when I was, I don't know, I was whining about something and somebody said, well, do you have gas in the car? I said, oh, well, yeah. And they said, oh, you have a car. Okay. You know, how about, how about food in your refrigerator? Yeah. Oh, you have a refrigerator. Okay. You know, do you have a shelter? Are you sleeping on somebody's couch? And I started being able to count the positives in my life instead of the negatives, but they were in comparison to the others that I saw around me and, and other feedback from other people. And then I began to understand that I didn't need half of what I thought I needed. 
it was a want, it wasn't a need. And so I realized that the fear that I talked about earlier is what was driving this self-will. I was afraid I wasn't going to get what I wanted. I was afraid I was going to lose something I had. And so it it propelled me to want more, grab more, uh, try to get more. And so when I could see what was driving it and I could see what my behavior was on the other side of it, it was it was easier to start stepping back from that. It's, it's kind of like uh, what you notice, what you pay attention to starts to change. One thing that helped me a lot is that uh, what you're describing I'm seeing there is a, a willingness to talk with others and engage with others. It, it may seem like a silly or small thing, but it wasn't um, silly or small for me. And um, in becoming willing to uh, share with someone else and, and the, you know, the instructions, so to speak, that got me started on that road where it was the uh, very solid advice to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a sponsor and work the steps. Okay. That's easy to remember, uh, easy to begin. And, uh, I was willing to do it. And by doing that, I was automatically sort of built in, uh, looking for who can I talk to, Instead of how can I uh, avoid talking to anyone, all of a sudden I'm doing the opposite. Okay, you know, who, who might be a good sponsor for me? They said to look for somebody that, uh, you know, that, that has something that you want, some way of being uh, in the world that you uh, perhaps even admire. So I'm looking around to find somebody that I can talk to. And then just by practicing it, um, you know, become more and more willing to do so. I had a sponsor uh, in in the early years who would ask me something similar, uh, though he had a very uh, compressed way of saying it. Um, what he would say to me is, do you have everything you need in this moment? And the answer was always, yes, I do. And uh, just by asking me that, uh, I could very quickly get my mind off of whatever... Um, kind of abstract concerns that I had, you know, these are, these are fears about things working out. And I still experienced this, um, this roller coaster of, uh, feeling uh, good that everything seems like it's, it's going okay. And maybe I have some plans or desires and I can see how they work out. Uh, and then the other side is, uh, uh, it's not coming together. It's not working. Uh, what am I going to do? I thought this would work, but it didn't work. And and I still have uh, some of that uh, roller coaster activity. Now it's not as extreme. You know, I don't need uh, substances or even cookies or even today uh, cigarettes uh, to get through it. But uh, it's still there. And my sponsor asking me, "Do you have everything that you need in this moment?" <clears throat> was a really good way for me to get my head, as we say, get my head back where my feet are right here and right now. And the truth is, in every moment, moment to moment, I generally do have what I need. It's, it's, my, it's my mind, you know, my mind's wonderful ability to uh, project forward, which can be good, um, but it would project forward and create worries and concerns. And then all of a sudden I felt like I need to be doing something now about the thing that might happen later. Do I have everything I need right now in this moment? Yes, I do. And that was great advice that I was given as well, to seek guidance. And at first, I didn't trust anybody. 
And then I, tr I did what you had suggested there, which was I talked to a couple people that seemed to have their head screwed on straight and that, that I admired or they had what I wanted in their demeanor and, and their behavior and things like that. And so I, I really learned from a lot of different people, but I learned to ask a question and the question was a reality check. I would call somebody and I would say, this is what happened. This is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And almost invariably, by the time I got done explaining it to them, um, they would be, you know, whether it was on the phone or in, in person, they would be going, um, well, let's see, why don't you think about this instead? And they invariably would point me to some of the tools of the program. They would, they would point me to prayer and meditation, for example. Um, they, would, they would point me to pause and stop and check. An awful lot of times I had to check hungry, angry, lonely, tired because I was projecting all these fears based on not enough sleep, uh, having forgotten to eat, uh, you know, being upset about something else. And then this comes into my view and now it's a big deal too. And so being able to ask for a reality check was one of my first touch points in being able to find some stability. I found great comfort in um, participating in what we call the meeting after the meeting. In fact, I really began to like that aspect of uh, showing up early uh, just to have some time to chat with whoever's there and then also maybe going out for coffee or a burger after the meeting or something like that. And I did that, uh, you know, early on in, in the first uh, couple of years. And that was a really wonderful way for me to connect with people in the community, even outside of the official gathering. Uh, it was partly helpful because uh, as I had always been more comfortable in a small group than a big group, you know, going out with a few guys after the meeting was a small group. And so that worked well for me. Um, but I also got to hear a lot more from from those people. You know, in, in a meeting context, I hear a little bit from a lot of different people. And if I keep going back, I begin to get a sense of the of the regular crowd, you know, people that I hear sharing their experience over and over, um, I get begin to get a sense of them. But it, because it's a community and we're we're each acting in right relation, uh, we're not taking a deep dive into our own um, experience necessarily. But I would get that when I went out uh, to the meeting after the meeting, and I would get to ask questions of these uh, guys who had you know twenty thirty years. Uh, of sobriety when I had one or or less than two. And uh, everyone had colorful names. I always liked that too because I was meeting so many new people and I was getting phone numbers as I was instructed to do. I had this growing list of phone numbers and we have the principle of anonymity which in one way translates to, you know, we usually go on a first name basis. And so in order to remember which Pete it was, it had to be Curly Pete because Pete had curly hair. And then there wasn't just Dave because there's more than one Dave. There's New York Dave and then there's other Dave and then there's South Africa Chris. Well, one time I asked South Africa Chris, um, you know, how long do you need to be doing this before, you know, you're not walking around thinking about one day at a time? all the time like I was and he just looked at me for a minute with this smile and uh, I think it might have taken him a second um, imagining he thought what a weird question and his, his answer was very kind he says uh, I, I do it I'm doing it today 
I do it every day. And this man had more than 20 years. And so that meant an awful lot to me. And and so one way that community helped me get out of myself and get into right relation was by giving me the opportunity to interact with others in a meaningful way and to to have fun, you know, and to seek guidance and and to laugh and and have some coffee and uh, connect with each other. You know, that interaction in community is so essential. You know, I, I uh, learned I was single when I first got into into recovery, and I didn't have any trouble at all at home. You know, I didn't have any problems with friction or anybody telling me what to do or disapproving of where I was going or what I was doing or how I spent my money or or any of that type of thing. But it's only once I got into community that I began to see that there were different ways of operating in the world. You know, one of the things they talk about is that uh, finances and romances mess up more early recovery than anything else. And I was guilty of just spending my money however I felt like it. I didn't have a budget, didn't feel the need for a budget. Of course, then I became unemployed. And so then it was like, okay, now what do I do? And people talked about how, yeah, I'm going out after afterwards for coffee. But you notice I only get pie and coffee. I don't order the $10 lunch every day, you know, or they go out for the community. They don't, and they go out for the experience. They go out for the companionship. They don't go out for the food. And so that became an important learning point for me is that I could put myself, this is, this falls under governance and self-governance and boundaries. I could put myself on an allowance and say, okay, I've got this many dollars I can spend this week on these type of activities. And that leaves the rest of it for paying my bills. Okay, great. You know, so I had to, I started learning about budgets and things like that from people that were doing it that had just as slim a resources as I had. And, and I had to do the same thing with time, time management. I uh, left the obsession with drugs and alcohol and I gained an obsession with video games. And I could stay up until three or four o'clock in the morning and then wonder why I'm tired at six, you know, <laughs> and it's time to get up. And I learned to put myself on a budget for that. I need to allow this much time for my free time, then I can spend it on video games if I want to. But this much time belongs to my family, and this much time belongs to my community. And I had to put up artificial guidelines like that for myself in order to learn how to to uh, be an effective community member. Yeah, I can see that. And, and I also did the thing with uh, video games, uh, although uh, and this will date me a little bit. It was uh, stuff I would play on my cell phone. And I remember feeling like and even being told, you know, if I would feel um, bad about, um, you know, playing too much Sudoku or whatever on my phone, someone would say to me, well, uh, when you're playing that game, are you drinking? No, I'm not. Well, then don't worry about it so much. You know, if you're still doing that a year from now, you know, let's talk about it again. But uh, I think that it's okay as we work to replace um, some habits with other habits. Uh, It takes time. I I remember having a friend early on that was uh, very down on himself because he was eating a lot of hard candy. And, you know, we learn in the program that uh, alcohol is sugar. And so it's completely understandable for somebody who spent a lifetime consuming a lot of alcohol that uh, we develop a sweet tooth. And you know what? Uh, eating hard candy is not uh, doing shots of tequila. And so let's let's relax a little bit because that uh, that beating up of ourselves is probably the actual danger, not the candy. The candy is not a danger to our sobriety, but getting down on ourselves 
um, certainly may be. But all of these things I learned from being in community with others. And uh, I, I really owe a lot of my sobriety to the kinds of things that I learned just from being around um, other people who were also in sobriety uh, as we move forward. And um, I, I learned to enjoy it after a while, even though it wasn't my favorite thing, even though when I first walked in, I was really afraid that uh, somebody might know me, you know, and then years later, I'd be afraid that nobody would know me, you know, to completely switch. I don't want to walk in a room where nobody knows I'm an alcoholic. I want to walk in a room where everybody knows, and they are too. Um, and so I just learned a lot from practicing. I guess it's, I guess it's like anything, you know, I practiced being in community first out of necessity because I, I wanted to stay, uh, sober. I did not want to slip back. And so I would just do the things that were recommended on blind trust. Um, and in doing those things, uh, I got in contact with others and then I began to enjoy, uh, being in in the program. And then I no longer had to make myself go. I looked forward to going. And so I mentioned earlier about pausing and about praying. I had had no relationship with a higher power for years prior to coming into the program. And so I relied on the rote prayers that I was taught once I acquired uh, some time in the program. And one of them that I leaned on in particular was the third step prayer, as I learned it, that that talked about relieve me from the bondage of self. You know, I recognized that this was a, uh, the way that I was showing up in the world was very self-centered, but I didn't know all the ways that manifested. And so when I p- pondered on that, you know, what does, what does the bondage of self look like? Well, I didn't have any trouble at all picking it out in you. You know, I'd go to a meeting and I'd see somebody acting all self-important and somebody else being all self-obsessed. You know, and and somebody else being all self-conscious, like every eye in the room was on them. And I had to do that before I could start seeing it in myself. And then I could not just not do that. And so I began to turn over this recovery piece to this higher power, a power outside or a power within, a power outside of my intellect, because I tried to manage by intellect. Um, that would help me relieve me from this bondage of self that sh- that propelled me assert- to show up a certain way in the world. And one of the biggest tools I learned was the pause, to stop, to wait. And I was given a guideline of wait 24 to 48 hours before I do anything. If I don't know what to do, it's not time to do anything. Wait. And that was a really hard one for me to do. But I learned... Uh, and actually, that's really still a good tool for me. When I when I get all caught up in, oh, gee, I need to do this right now. It sounds like a really good idea. I need to change this. Um, I wait. And then oftentimes, two days later, I can't even remember what the idea was. But, you know, being given some practical tools like that and uh, being taught a few prayers, a few words to say when I was in, that indicated willingness to change. You know, the, the prayer didn't change me. Uh, or didn't change my circumstances as much as it just indicated my willingness to change and receptivity to a new idea, a different way. Yes, I can see that. And I've heard it said that, uh, you know, prayer doesn't change the world. Prayer changes us and we change the world. And I love that because that, that it's always made a lot of sense to me. I also love what you just said about that power greater than ourselves. Because in unity, you know, we we tend to look at 
um, God to look at higher power as very much an internal thing. You know, of course, not completely internal, but that's where we encounter God. We always talk about turning within. Uh, we talk about the Christ within, and uh, we're very focused on that uh, presence of God within us. But then in the program, we hear a phrase like a power outside of yourself. And I think that you uh, nailed it, the power outside of my intellect, a power outside of my thinking mind. You know, my thinker that, uh, depending on what I'm pointing it at, can be super helpful or super not helpful uh, in what's going on. I was able to, uh, after being in community in uh, recovery groups more, to kind of expand out into other situations with uh, people who are not uh, necessarily in recovery. And one of those uh, places was my church. You know, I'd gone to church for a while uh, before I got sober, kind of faded away you know, it's just basically an attendee. Uh, but then after getting in community in the recovery group, I went back to church and I started volunteering and getting in community there and really getting to know people instead of just sort of showing up and being quiet and scooting out, um, you know, before the potluck or what have you. And so I, I was grateful that the kinds of things that I was learning in the, you know, in the strictly recovery um, atmosphere were, um, translating really well to other communities like my spiritual home. And that is, uh, it leads right into what I was thinking about with, with service work. You know, I learned about service work in my recovery community and I was told that it was basically helping without expectation, expectation of anything in return, you know, pitching in and helping. But when I look at the way that it unfolds in my life, I am of service in my church community. I am of service in my recovery community, in the communities that I serve as a worker, as well as those that I serve as just a, a member. And in each of those cases, service has been the key for me to belonging and to practicing not being so self-centered. I have a friend, uh, and I'll share this briefly, who had a great phrase. It was, quote, the good of the people. He pointed out how uh, sometimes, and especially with his wife, he would do, um, you know, something that he wanted to do. Maybe we'd go to a movie or something, but he was always very mindful of the idea that, you know, sometimes uh, we do things for ourselves, and sometimes we do things for the good of the people. And the people could be you know, a marriage. It could be a family of origin. It could be, um, you know, part of our uh, associates at work or whatever. But that simple phrase, the good of the people, because he just said it quickly and with so much delight that I, I always remember it. And I, I found that it's very helpful. So we've talked about a lot of tools. Yes, we should talk about the tools of uh, denial and affirmation. So let's do that. Let's move into action. You know, Unity's fifth principle states that it's not enough to know these truths. We must live them. And that means we must each take action in order to grow and recover. So here's something that you can do right now and carry with you this week to come into better balance with yourself and others. So think of some area of your life where maybe you feel like you're out of balance. Maybe you're struggling with self-centeredness regarding the needs of your community. Or perhaps you're unaware or turn a blind eye to the needs of others. Or maybe even you want to stay in your comfort zone rather than welcome newcomers or new members. Or maybe you're just sick of how you feel when you actually realize the extent of your self-focus. 
Are you reluctant to assist others when they are in need, or do you worry about not having enough? So you don't want to give? Well, what's important now is to pick one thing, preferably a simple thing, and to take it into a quiet time of prayer and meditation, to simply relax and take it easy, knowing that there's no need to struggle. So let's, as an example, use being hesitant to assist others. We use a statement of power, or what we refer to in unity as a denial, to deny any power to this hesitancy to help. You could say something like, this feeling of separation from others is not the truth of who I am. Repeat it a few times in your head, or even say it aloud, but say it with conviction. This feeling of separation from others is not the truth of who I am. And follow that up immediately with a bold, positive affirmation of a new experience. So you could say, I am one of many and connected to all of humanity. We're all important. And then just take a few quiet moments to relax and take it easy. There's no need to struggle. You just give thanks for your new experience in the world and move on with your day. And once again, this feeling of separation from others is not the truth of who I am. I'm one of many and connected to all of humanity, and we're all important. So we've come to the end of our time here together today, and we hope that you found a tool or a thought, that, something that can help you on your recovery path. We both want to bless you on your journey. And so thank you for all our listeners and so much to my co-host, Reverend Dan Beckett, for the insights that were shared in our discussion today. And listeners, if you would like, you can connect with us on our Facebook page. Once again, that is Spirit of Recovery and give us your thoughts and feedback. And we invite you to join us again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central. And until then, have a wonder-filled week. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.